we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 13. You can go and open your Bibles there. Hebrews 13. <clears throat> hey, would you mind putting that slide up there of Hosanna, um, the part that begins with heal my heart and make it clean? You mind doing that? Just for a second. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. It, it's okay. Well, that's not okay. There we go. Uh, yeah, I, I just want to put these lyrics on the screen in front of your eyes for just a moment, okay? Because this is really a good introductory, um, I don't know, phrase into our message today. Heal my heart and make it clean. The implication of that is that God would then do a work in us, right? To open up our eyes to see things uh, differently, uh, to see things unseen. That word Hosanna, it, it's a biblical word. It means uh, bring salvation now. It's what they chanted when Jesus on Palm Sunday when he was coming and they thought he was going to overthrow Rome or do some big, you know, amazing thing in their own eyes. He did a big amazing thing. It was overcoming not Rome but overcoming sin. And so we sing Hosanna because we know that Jesus is going to come and put to death, death once and for all. Um, that, go to the next slide of that if you don't mind. The very next thing. Show me how to love like you have loved me. That, that statement right there is what we're going to talk about this morning. Showing, God showing us how to love the way that he instructs us to. Okay, thank you. You can go back to that title slide now. Um, you guys, one of our favorite things around here on Wednesday nights to eat is uh, breakfast for supper. You guys know about breakfast for dinner? I heard some amens, I think, maybe some mutterings in there somewhere. Uh, we love breakfast for dinner around here, and, and the kitchen crew, and Kevin as the, uh, oh, captain, my captain. Um, I don't know what you do with those grits. I don't know if it's, it's some, some holy sprinkles you put in there or what, but there's something amazing. Is it, is it Adam? Adam, is that you? Man, you're anointed, my brother. Um, there's something special that happens when we do breakfast for dinner. But you guys know what I'm talking about, right? Breakfast for dinner. Do you guys do that in your home? Ever had breakfast food for supper? Now, obviously, you know what I mean when I say that, when I say that word, breakfast for dinner, but isn't that one of the biggest of oxymorons ever? Breakfast for dinner. It makes no sense. You know what breakfast is? It's when you wake up and eat food, okay? We're having it for dinner, and so it's an oxymoron, right? But you know what I mean when I say that. There's another example of a big-time oxymoron in Scripture, but you kind of know what I mean when you say it, and that's when God's Word uses the words uh, living sacrifice. You ever heard those words? Romans 12:1, a living sacrifice. You know what a sacrifice is? It's something that's dead, right? But God's word uses the word living sacrifice. Paul says that in Romans 12, 1. When, when God had his people bring animal sacrifices, it meant that they were dead sacrifices. And yet Paul in the New Testament says this, Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as sacrifices. That would mean killing ourselves. That's not what he says, right? He says, present your bodies as living sacrifices sacrifices. The sacrificial system in the Old Testament was a way of worshiping God. And so what this passage means and what we're going to see today is that we can live our lives, not kill ourselves in such a way, but live our lives in such a way that we are giving God praise and honor and worship and glory. That's a living sacrifice. We don't do it by slaying ourselves, but by putting to death our flesh and living for the glory of God. And so Hebrews, though written by a different author, I believe, Hebrews, specifically the final chapter, is full of rapid fire, final instructions for how to be a living sacrifice, meaning that your worship is not only what you do in these walls, but just as importantly, and maybe even more importantly, the way that you live outside of this space, to be a living sacrifice. 
And so today what we're going to see in chapter 13, verses 1 through 6, is that we can worship through love. We can worship God, living sacrifice, through the means of love, the way that we love. Show me how to love like you, God, right? We can worship God through that. If you haven't been with us before now, we've been walking through the book of Hebrews from chapter 1, verse 1. And so if you're a guest or just haven't been here for that long, um, then this is going to kind of be a, a, a new thing to you, but it's a continuation. And so I'll give some recap as we go to, okay? Chapter 13, starting in verse 1, we're going to read 1 through 6. It says this, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The book of Hebrews has maybe, and again, we've been going through this book for several months. In fact, I think September was when we began it. Uh, it's maybe at times seemed like a textbook of Christianity for the Jews. Whereas Romans, you may read Romans and think it's a textbook of Christianity for the Gentiles, of which you probably are a Gentile, a non-Jew, right? But this, maybe when we read the book of Hebrews, we can maybe think this is like a textbook of Christianity for Jewish people. But chapter 13 is neat because it reminds us that this book was written to to real people about real life with real struggles. It doesn't read like a Christian textbook. It reads like someone that's really wanting to say, guys, I know that you struggle to do these things. Now hear these things and change the way that you live in light of these things. In fact, the transition from the very last two verses in chapter 12 are notable. They speak of a life of acceptable worship, of reverence and awe. Look at them real quick. 12, 28, and 29 says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And listen, thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So again, the chapters and numbers are not inspired, all right? The, the numbers that are in there are not. Paul didn't write, okay, now 13, right? Here's the, he didn't say that. He didn't write that. The very next thing that he says is right after live a life that is acceptable of worship, he then says, here's what I mean by that. Here's what I mean by that. Let brotherly love, he says, continue. And so what I'm going to leave with you guys today is that we can worship through love in action in three ways. And we're just going to see these as we walk through the text this morning. Three ways. Number one is that we can love through action by love for siblings and strangers. Love for siblings and strangers. Now, I don't mean your physical siblings, although you honestly should probably love them too, right? I mean... Well, you should. Not probably, you just should, okay? But I'm talking about spiritual siblings, brothers and sisters in Christ. Believers are in a familial relationship, right? That's why we call ourselves that, brothers and sisters, because we are sons and daughters of God. That's why we call him Father, because we are sons and daughters of his. As I said earlier, we're grafted into his family, adopted into his kingdom. His family has sons and daughters. And if we are all, just do the math here, right? If we're all sons and daughters of one, then we're brothers and sisters, right? I know that's, that's maybe a logical stretch, but it, it, just follow me here, okay? We're brothers and sisters. We have a familial spiritual relationship with one another, which is why he starts in verse 1 saying, let brotherly love, 
continue. The word continue there in Greek is a synonym for the word persevere, meaning let it keep going. Even though it's hard, that's what persevere means, right? Is that when it's hard to let something keep on going, persevere, hang in there. And so what he's saying is let brotherly love, even when it's hard, let it keep going. The Greek word for brotherly love you may have heard before. It's Philadelphia. You ever heard that word? It's like, yeah, that's where I do my gambling. Don't say that. Don't say that, right? Don't say that. Not in here. The word is Philadelphia, and you know that, the city of brotherly love, right? That's what that word means. And it's literally, I mean, if you look at it in Greek, it literally reads exactly the way that you would read it. P-H-I-L, I I mean, Philadelphia. It looks just like that. But that word was far more profound then than it is now. We've kind of just let that word just kind of be nothing. That word Philadelphia for them was so big because the early Christian movement was marked out by unique brotherly affection for one another. It was love within the church family. Now hear this. You guys ever kind of heard that the love chapter is is 1 Corinthians 13? Are you familiar with that? The love chapter is 1 Corinthians 13, right? Well, here's the thing. You may have heard that chapter quoted at a a marriage or wedding ceremony or something like that, or maybe in in a love book about husbands and wives. But that chapter in that book is not about marriage. That chapter in that book is about brotherly love in the confines of God's church. 1 Corinthians 13 is not about the love between husband and wife, although there's certainly application there. That chapter and those verses are about the love that's right here. It's church love. It's love between brothers and sisters in Christ. It says this, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 says, Love, brotherly love, is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things. That means it believes the best in others. It hopes all things. It means it hopes for the best things for others. And it endures all things, meaning it's forgiving and gracious and merciful. You think, well, that actually does sound like my marriage. I need those things. You do. But first, in the context of that passage, it's talking about God's church. Now, why would Paul say that? And why would the author of Hebrews say that? I know this is a stretch, but check this out. Because we need to hear it. Because they needed to hear it. And because we, 2,000 years later, need to hear it. It is hard to love in those ways the people around you. But it's especially hard to love the people around you in those ways if you don't even know them. Some of you guys have been going to church here for 10 years with people that are sitting in this room for 10 years and you don't even know their names. I'm not giving you a guilt trip. I'm just saying, if you want to fulfill the command to love like that, it's probably a good idea to know each other. It's not weird to go across the room and see somebody you don't know and just say, hey, I've seen you here and it's embarrassing that I haven't done this until now, but I just wanted to introduce myself and say, I've seen you, I'm glad that you're here too, and I just want to have a relationship with you, even if it's cordial or whatever. There's nothing weird about that. You're brothers and sisters, right? We're in a sibling familial relationship. We don't just go to the same church. We are to functionally love one another as God's church, to love one another in word. It isn't weird to tell your spiritual sibling even that you love them. Tell each other you love each other. You're called to, man, but also to do so in deed, in service, in patience, forgiveness, and not being irritable, 
as it said just a moment ago in that passage. Full circle then, the reason I want you to see this is if we're taking the application of the second part of chapter 12, verse 28, about acceptable worship, the application of that, the very first application of that is the first verse of chapter 13. You're going to live a life that's acceptably worship unto God. Love each other. Isn't that neat? That love for others is a fruit of worship of God. Love for others is a fruit of worship for God. What are the fruit of the Spirit? Love. We'll just stop there for now, right? Love. Loving one another is worshipful unto God, and it is compassionate and caring unto one another. The passage is going to seem like it jumps around, and so that's why I wanted to apply that quickly, because it kind of goes in a different direction. Number two, verse two, it says, verse two says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. So it goes from brotherly love, continuing, persevering, to now, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. In the early church, hospitality was hard to come by, but it was very, very valuable. There were lots of travelers, Christian travelers, non-Christian travelers, and so inns would oftentimes be dangerous. People would get robbed and harmed and mugged and all those things. And so the key here is what he's saying is that there's an opportunity for Christians to be courteous and generous, to love well, and therefore, as a result, represent Jesus to those that do or maybe do not know him. But this part may have jumped out to you as we read that. This thing about angels. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Well, that may make you think of in Genesis chapter 18 and 19 with Abraham and Lot. Remember, he's writing to Hebrews, a Jewish audience, and so almost certainly their mind would probably go there, that those two guys showed hospitality to strangers, those guys ended up being angels. And so it makes sense that the author of Hebrews would mention this. And yes, this does mean that angels can take the form of human beings and be walking among us. And you may have never read that verse and be thinking, what? It's in there. It says what it says. What does that mean? How does that apply? You know what? I'm really not sure, but it does say that. But here's the thing. And while we could get bogged down on the detail, that's not the main thing that we're meant to see here. What I want you to understand is that that mentality of, oh my goodness, that, that guy that I just you know, bumped into at Cracker Barrel and, and said something ugly under my breath, was that an angel? I don't know, maybe. But the point is that that should not motivate our love, but it is something that we ought to keep in mind. It's happened before, and according to God, it happens. The principle, though, is that we should be hospitable to all people, whether we know them or not. And that doesn't mean that we make ourselves vulnerable and trust them quickly, but it does mean that we should be kind and generous and courteous and respectful to all and so represent Jesus well to them. We should treat all people, in other words, as if God personally put them in your path because he did. Because he did. We should treat all people as if God himself placed them in our path. Love is at times inconvenient and sacrificial, which is what we see in the next verse, verse, verse 3. It says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. This part about people being in prison and being mistreated, it, it really clearly connects to a passage we've looked at already in chapter 10, verses 32 through 34 that says this. He says, he's talking about applying and saying you guys struggle and there's persecution for you. He says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened and after you became a Christian, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Verse 33 says, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. 
For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering, the stealing of your property. Joyfully accepted the stealing of your property. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Here's why that matters. In context, it would be easy, in their context, it would be easy to disown or to put away people that were imprisoned. And the reason why is because it was shameful. It was a big thing of shame for someone to go to prison. And in a big, in the Middle East, it's still like this. It's an honor and shame culture. And so if someone was shamed as a family, you want to distance yourself, cut them off and say, no, my family's not going to be shamed because of the mistakes of that one individual. And that's true in the Middle East in, in, a, in a big way. But perhaps you have or once had a more traditional family member who distanced himself or herself from a member of the family if they brought public shame on your family. And this is something that maybe was more true years and years ago here than it is now, but maybe even still some now. Say someone's known to being the town drunk, and you may have a family member that says, "Mm, until they they come around, we're not going to own them. We're going to kind of distance ourselves. Or someone commits infidelity or has been in prison. They may distance themselves. The point is, the question that we may ask ourselves, isn't it easier to just distance myself from that person than to kind of do the hard thing and love them? Yeah, maybe it's easier, but it's not loving. It may be easier, but it's not loving. And this is what the author of Hebrews is saying. In this culture, the temptation was to ignore or forget those in prison because of the shame incurred by association with them. And the principle then is that the readers were tempted to avoid, listen, The readers were tempted to avoid mistreatment by their peers and to fit in with the society by being unloving to someone shamed by the culture or by the government. We got some application there. That there's a temptation to distance yourself from someone if it means that you may be publicly shamed or dismissed by the culture or by the government. The author more specifically is calling on his readers to link arms with those that are imprisoned or mistreated specifically as a result of being a follower of Jesus. In other words, to be willing to be named alongside those who suffer for the sake of the gospel. The call to worshipful love means that love may at times be inconvenient. I don't know about you guys, but sometimes it's inconvenient to love me because I'm a real knucklehead, as my mom used to say. And sometimes it's hard to love people. It may mean that it's a sacrifice of your time, of your energy. It may mean that it's a financial sacrifice. It may mean that you get canceled too. It may mean that you're mistreated too. It may mean that you lose a friend or approval because you're obedient to God's word. And guys, that is going to be more and more true as each passing year goes along in our culture. You will be shamed. You will be dismissed because you're a person living by God's word. You will be. But the thing is, you will never be called to a greater more mistreating, more inconvenient form of suffering for love's sake than the Son of God who became sin, who knew no sin, so that you might become the righteousness of God. You'll never suffer that much, but he did for you. Show me how to love like you. We should treat all people as if God personally put them in our path because he did. And so full circle, once again, love for others is a fruit of worship of God. Love in action, worship in action. The second thing is love for spouse. Now realize, again, love for spouse. I realize that not everyone in here is married, um, but this is so core in this passage that uh, I think it's important to talk about. 
Okay, not everyone here is married, but I think that there's something really important to take away from here, especially for those that one day perhaps would like to be married, perhaps a young single person. Love for spouse. Verse 4 says this. Please look closely at this. Let marriage be held in honor. Remember what I said just a moment ago about honor and shame culture, right? Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. The importance of the word honor here cannot be overstated. In, In context of marriage, don't we call marriage holy matrimony? But man, we don't treat it that way. Like our, our culture does not treat matrimony as holy. But this is what this passage is saying. Your marriage, or the marriage that you one day will have, is not a roommate experiment. It's not an experiment at all. It's a one flesh union till death do you part. Our culture doesn't honor marriage at all. We cannot take our lessons from the culture when it comes to being married. A few statistics for you and some facts and figures. The marriage rate, first of all, is plummeting. Young people don't want to be married. And to be honest, a lot of that's because of who raised them. They haven't seen marriage work well. They haven't seen it be a good thing. And so why would they want anything to do with it? But the marriage rate is plummeting. According to one study, the marriage rate in the United States in 1970 was 76.5%. As today, it stands just over 31 31, y'all. Not only is the marriage rate plummeting, the divorce rate is steadily climbing. You may have heard it said half of marriages end in divorce. Yes, half of first marriages end in divorce. But those that are second and third marriages, it's actually at a much higher rate. The average time span for a marriage today in our country is eight years. And so the culture has a remedy for that, so they think. The culture says, well, we should live together first. Statistics show that living together prior to marriage, I'm reading this, living together prior to marriage is one predictor for the likelihood of divorce, with far more marriages that did not cohabitate prior to marriage as lasting 20 plus years than those that lived together prior to marriage. There's not a positive correlation, in other words, between living together and it lasting. It's the opposite. Why do you think that is? Because it doesn't honor God. Many sociologists consider divorce to be a social contagion, meaning that couples who have close friends who divorce have a 75% increase in the risk of their own marriage ending in divorce. I began by saying that our culture doesn't honor marriage, but I want to be clear about something. Professing Christians are no better, and often, this is so heartbreaking, or often or even worse. The religion with the lowest divorce population is Hindu, and it's low. I think it's uh, 5%. The religion with the highest divorce population is evangelical Protestant Christians. That's us. In fact, it's about 14.5%. I think that's the number. About one in eight married, in other words, one in eight married Christian couples end in divorce. One in eight professing Christian couples, I should say. It's a higher percentage, in fact, than those with no religious affiliation at all. In other words, Christians get divorced at a higher rate than agnostics and atheists. Guys, what in the world? That's broken. I mean, that's so broken. That, this is not holding marriage in honor <laughs> at all, right? 
Now look, there are a million factors here, and I know that many of the people in this room have been impacted by divorce, and I realize that right now you're like, hey, chill out. You don't know my circumstances. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know what my parents have been through, and you're right, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not making some criticism on your situation. I'm saying that we as a society and as a Christian subculture do not honor marriage, and maybe you don't either, and maybe you haven't. I don't know. That's, that's between you and the Lord. I don't know your situation, many of you. Some of you, I do. But the point is that many people in this room have been impacted by divorce, perhaps you or your parents, and perhaps there were legitimate biblical grounds for a divorce. I'm not dismissing that. And now is not the time to delve into all those variables. And I promise you, I'm compassionate and gracious and understanding. I promise you, I've done enough marital counseling that are headed for divorce to understand that things happen and life is hard and divorce seems like the only way out. I understand that and I hear you on that. But my point is to say this, divorce is proof positive that marriage is not held in honor. That's it. Any divorce breaks God's heart. Even if it's making the best of a bad situation, it's still not good, okay? Even if, if, if there's grounds and you're not sinning and doing so, it's still not something that is just great, is it? I mean, divorce is sad. It's two things that have come together to make one flesh. You ever tried to tear apart your flesh? I hope not. That sounds really painful. And that's what divorce is. It's pulling apart your flesh, one flesh, and it is painful. My point is to say that it isn't now held in high honor. Marriage isn't. But the presence of this instruction 2,000 years ago to this Hebrew, Jewish, very religious culture, they're given the same instruction that you guys, that, that we are. And so that means that it's proof positive in this culture that they didn't hold marriage in high honor either. We're not special in that way. Marriage is then and now, I'm sure. I know this is true now. They're filled with disrespect, abuse, whether it be physical, verbal, or emotional. They're full of manipulation, secrecy, and selfishness. So much selfishness. Not sacrifice. Selfishness. But the big kicker here that this author wants to hone in on is that marriages are full, oftentimes, of infidelity, sexual sin. This is where he's going, not me. This is where author is going. They're full of infidelity and sexual sin. He says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. He then says, a warning to the sexual, sexually immoral. The sexually immoral, the literal word there is pornos. Does that sound familiar? That's where we get the word pornography from. Pornos. The word literally means anyone who engages in sexual activity outside of marriage between one man and one woman. Simply put, if you're asking yourself, what about this, what about this, what about this, it probably fits in that category. I'm convinced that nothing wrecks marriages like pornography, whether it be clear and present danger or whether it be held in secret. And that is more available and more easily accessible now than it has ever been, and the divorce rates are higher now than they've ever been. Do the math. Just do the math. And if that's you, I'm going to get to a word of, of encouragement, I promise, okay? But if that's you, I just got a, a sobering question. I'm going to guard the way I say this because there's kids in here. Do you love watching people do that more than you love God, your wife, and your children? So how do you hold marriage in honor? 
Well, you speak about one another honorably. Speak about one another honorably, respectfully. Again, you're one flesh. Is my mic still working? Sorry. You're one flesh, right? You're not roommates. It's your wife. It's your husband. It's not your ball and chain. We use that phrase, right? Man, that's such a terrible connotation. And even if it's said jokingly, and I've said it jokingly before to my wife because I like to pick on her. But, man, I love her so much. And for some reason, she loves me back. That's not my ball and chain, you guys. That's your wife. That's your husband. That's your spouse. That's your one flesh union. And by the way, especially around your children, speak about one another honorably and respectfully. Especially around your children. They're listening, man. Where do you think they're going to get whether or not they value or disvalue marriage? Yours. They're going to get it from yours. And is that a lot of power? Yeah, unfortunately, it's a whole lot of power. Not only speak about one another honorably. How do you honor your spouse? To know your spouse. Know specific ways that your spouse feels loved. And on the flip side, know specific ways that your wife feels unloved. Some of you guys that aren't married here today are young people. You're getting premarital counseling and just didn't realize it yet, okay? Know your spouse or your would-be one-day spouse. That means know her or him physically, emotionally, intimately. How do you do that? You talk to them. You invest in them. You know them and know how they feel loved and how they feel unloved. Don't just speak of them and know of them. Be present with them. You got to be present. You got to be present. Be intimate. Be affectionate with them, even in front of your children, okay? And that's a weird thing to say. I don't mean that. I mean you should be affectionate toward one another in a way that says to your kids, mom and dad love each other. There should be no question about that in your home that mom and dad love each other. They need to know that their marriage, that your marriage is honorable because they want to pursue an honorable marriage one day too. Brooke and I got back from a date that we ain't had a date in a long time. But by the grace of a a sister in Christ here at the church, she said, y'all go on a date. I'm going to take care of the kids. And so we did. We got back. We got out of the car. The first thing that one of our kids said to us when we got out of the car was, did you guys kiss? I said, we haven't, but we're about to. And so I kissed her because I want her to know that I love their mom. They needed to know that. They needed to know that your marriage is one of honor. And be faithful. Be faithful, man. Be faithful physically. Be faithful emotionally. You don't have to do an act to be unfaithful in your mind. Be faithful in your thoughts. Be faithful on your timeline. You don't even have to leave your bedroom to be unfaithful. Be faithful in your timeline. Be faithful with your browser history. Men, this is a commercial. Confide in a mature brother who can get in the foxhole with you and combat sexual sin alongside you. You don't have to do that alone. One of the men's ministry groups that's starting, is Joe in here? Is JR in here? I don't think he is. I think it's starting tonight. There's a, the sign-up sheet is out there, and it's about sexual purity for men. Even if you are too ashamed to put your name on that sheet of paper, Come and talk to me about this, and I will make sure that you find the right place to be at the right time. I understand that's embarrassing and that's shameful. You don't have to put your name on a sheet of paper to be a part of that group. If you need help, we will get you help. And I'll say this because I said a moment ago that I was going to end with encouragement, and here's the encouragement. If you have failed, or if you you have had a failed marriage, it does not mean that there is not redemption for you. Adultery and pornography 
are not the unforgivable sins. Thank God. Because we'd be falling like dominoes, man. Adultery and pornography are not the unforgivable sins. The call is to redeem tomorrow, even if you have failed yesterday. We sang a song just a moment ago. Bring all your failures. Bring your addictions. Come lay them down at the foot of the cross. Jesus is waiting with our open arms. Today can be a day of encouragement, not a day of despair. Because I know, I know that many of you in this room are struggling right now. Don't bury it. Look for help. You know, there's a tendency to think that you're the only one that's in the boat that you're in. But you would not believe the number of people in this room that are in struggling marriages. You would not believe it. You wouldn't believe it. Be bold. And today, maybe you and your spouse need to make, make a commitment with your spouse that you're going to fight for it, that you're going to repent together. You know, those statistics I mentioned just a moment ago, I think it was around 74% of those said that their spouse should have worked harder to fight for their marriage. Be the spouse that works harder. Be the spouse that fights for it. God is a consuming fire. And those that live with a hardened heart of unrepentant sexual sin, defiling God's desire for marriage and sex, they're playing with that fire. That's why he says that God will judge. Full circle. Love for your spouse. Those that are waiting for a spouse, love for God in the midst of that waiting. It's worship unto God, for it is God that gave them or will give them to you. And once again, sexual purity is a means through which we worship God. It's worship. It's worship in action. Third, and lastly, love from contentment. Love from contentment. I wrote helper up there because of the the word that we're going to see in verse 6, the Lord is my helper. Love from contentment or love for the one that gives us a heart of contentment. Um, so we just talked about sexual sin, right? And in the ancient world, oftentimes sexual sin was immediately paired with greed. And so that's exactly where this author goes. He goes from sexual sin to the other danger that's often closely linked in the ancient world, which is greed. The readers, as I mentioned a moment ago in chapter 10, verse 34, they'd been robbed of their possessions because they were Christians, because of their Christian faith. And to be honest with you, it's hard to imagine how. Like, were they targeted because of their religious affiliation? I don't know. Were they uh, taxed maybe to, a, to a, a degree of robbery from the institutions? I, I really don't know. But what's clear here is that the author says in chapter 10, verse 34, is that because people were Christ followers, they were targeted and their goods and their things were taken away from them. They were plundered. And so having already been robbed of possessions due to their allegiance to Christ, they were tempted to then turn away from the gospel in order to perhaps gain security and be spared from difficulty. Do you see that, right? Hey, we're getting robbed because we're Christians. Maybe we just shouldn't be. Maybe we can stop identifying this way and stop calling ourselves Christians and we just be able to hold on to our stuff. Verse 5, in light of that, says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. It's a call to live out the tenth of the Ten Commandments. Do not covet, right? 
And in the context, back in that passage in Deuteronomy, it says, do not covet your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's animals, your neighbor's belongings. In the Old Testament, it was a little bit different than it is now, right? I don't, I've never wished that your animals were mine. I take that back. Uh, when, when eggs were about $78 a dozen, I did wish that some of your chickens belonged to me. Shout out to Michael Bowden, if you're listening, Michael. That's my egg man. Um, and Tony, you, you once were, my man. Thank you. But today's entire commercial economy is built on a foundation that encourages us to have what we want and to want what we do not have. Guys, it's literally a society of covetousness. That's what coveting is. It's wanting something you don't have. We live in a society of covetousness. I read, it's a difficult, it's a quote, it's a difficult thing to live free from want and free from the love of money to get us what we want. That's the culture we live in, y'all. It's a hard culture to live in because covetousness is just interwoven throughout all of our society and commerce. But hear this, the passage doesn't say that money is the problem, right? You see that, right? The passage doesn't say that money is the problem, that money is evil. It doesn't say that. It's a warning against the love of money. The negative is, do not love money. The positive is, be content. Don't love money, be content. It isn't a sin to desire money, to desire things. It's not a sin to desire money. It's not a sin to desire things. There's a saying in my house, money isn't everything, but it's something. It's said by me. I'm the one that says it. Okay, I'm the only one that says that in my house, but it's, it's still a saying in my house. Money isn't everything, but it's something. Listen, God's word, and the reason I say that is that it's not a sin to desire money and things, because God's word comprehensively lays out teachings on investment, on thrift, on labor, on savings, and the list can go on and on about, about gain. God's word gives us a, a big philosophy on what it means to seek out financial gain. That's a good thing, not a bad thing. We're not, we shouldn't be feel bad for wanting to, to, to gain money and things because there, there's, a, there's a God-given desire there for investment and thrift and labor and savings. But the verse tells us to be content with what we have. You can have both of those things. You can want to gain and yet also be content with what you have. This verse, in other words, isn't about an economic philosophy. It's about a spiritual principle by which to live. The source of our contentment is not the security the comfort that we get from owning enough things. Our source of contentment is that we serve a God who takes care of us. Your source of contentment is not how much you have. It's who you belong to. That's why it says in the second part of verse 5, be content with what you have, for he has said, for he, right? Be content, for he, because of him. He has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Verse 6 then says, so we can confidently say, and this is from, a quote from Psalm 118, the Lord is my helper. The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Contentment, guys, is faith that God has given you exactly what you are meant to have. That's contentment is that God has given you exactly what you are meant to have. Enough for gratitude and dependence. Enough for gratitude and dependence, but not enough for idolatry and independence. Someone who understood this well is the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4, 11 through 13. You guys ever heard that verse? Um, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, right? I can do all things. Like, 
You've heard, I mean, that's, that means that I can go out there and, listen, if I, if I try hard enough, guys, I can become a 6'6", small forward in the NBA. All things, right? Obviously, that's not what that means. I want you to understand what this passage means in its context because it falls right in line with what we're talking about. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. Not that I'm speaking of being in need. By the way, Paul's writing from prison, okay? I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Verse 12 then says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The paraphrase is, I can suffer because I know who I belong to. Not, I can dunk a basketball. I can suffer. I can do that because I know the one who's got me. Contentment is worship. It's love of God over the love of money, over the love of stuff. Another phrase in my home is, it's just money. And that one is said by more than just me. It's just money. At the end of the day, it's nice to have. But when it comes to eternity, it will not last. It's just money. Everything that can be taken away from us, listen, will one day be taken away from us one day. Nevertheless, we have everything that we need in Christ Jesus. And the good news of the gospel is that we can be content because we belong to a God who redeems and provides and sanctifies and cares for us. One powerful moment when we were in Africa. We just got back from Eswatini, Africa just a week and a half ago, and I'm still jet-lagged. It really stinks. But one of the cool things when we were there is um, we had seven people that went with us, and we debriefed and told the church about that last Sunday night, and many of you were here, and I'm grateful for that. Um, but one of those moments that was really cool was when Chris was, uh, we were sitting, standing at the care point, and there was a girl uh, who learned that he could sing. And can he sing or what? That was weird, sorry. Um, they learned that he could sing, and, and they wanted to hear him sing. And so the first song, I think, that came to your mind was uh, His Eyes on the Sparrow, right? And I don't know if you thought that through, Chris, but to sing that in the context of people that lack is pretty profound. I mean, really. It's profound that God would put that on your heart to people that, that lack a lot and yet can say, I have everything that I need because I trust that God is going to provide for me. Um, do you have the picture that I sent you of that family? We did home visits when we were there. And um, we, just a few, of our, a few of our team went to each home on each, on each different day and had to walk usually a, a good ways to get there. Uh, the two people that you see in the middle there, the man's name is Enoch, and he's the one that I, by the way, how about that name? Enoch, right? The man who was faithful and walked with God. Um, I was sitting there talking with Enoch with our translator who's on the far right over there in that hat, Zanele. She's rocking that thing. Um, we were sitting there visiting, and um, we brought with us a, a bag of, of rice and a bag of beans and some peanut butter uh, and some cooking oil and soap. I think that that's everything. Um, but it was enough food to feed their homestead, their family, for at least a month. Um, and all the families that were, that were targeted for these gifts, which is only four or five of them, uh, they needed it. Because the shepherd, Zanele, who's on the far right, she knew the needs of these families, right? And so she told us, go to this one. So we went and we took these things to Enoch. And man, he was so grateful. In talking to him, I realized that um, 
he was jobless, and, and the people, I think that only maybe one person in the homestead worked. Because of COVID, it was hard to, to find work. Um, but a lot of these families that received these things that had death in the family or joblessness, or a lot of it had to do with the drought, and they, they could plant gardens, and that care point is there to help them plant gardens. But man, if it doesn't rain, that's, that's tough. Like they, they, they don't eat. And in that context, we bring these gifts to, to this family and this guy, Enoch, and he said something that just absolutely rocked my world. He said, what you've done today will be etched in my family's history forever. It might have cost $50 to bring all that stuff to him. Maybe. $50. He said that that changed his family's history forever. Guys, my response to him was, Enoch, this is not a gift from man. It is a gift from God. Because I am not his savior. But he needs to know, verse 6, the Lord is his helper. And man, do we need to know that. The convicting thing is that his faith, Enoch's faith, and many like him, has grown through the struggle, through dependence on God. But so often our faith shrinks back because of our comfort and ease. It's a catch-22, right? We want more, and yet it, it handicaps and breaks our own legs of faith. I want you to hear me say this. Whatever you're going through right now, it may be love for the church or brothers and sisters or love for those that are hard to love. It may be that you need to make a recommitment to loving your spouse today. It may mean that you need to make a recommitment to a heart of contentment and not greed and wanting and wanting and wanting, but being satisfied that God provides and takes care of you. Whatever it is, trust in him. He works everything in your life. If you love God, he works everything in your life for your good, Romans 8. Trust him in that. Depend on him. God's strength is seen most clearly when you are weak, not when you are strong. Hardship is there to draw you nearer to him, not push you further away from him. His provision is when you lack. God is enough. Guys, if you trust that God gave his son to secure your eternity, is it not much less to trust that he will secure your day-to-day? If he did the greater, can he not do the lesser? Your greatest need in this life is not friends, it's not a spouse, it's not even food and clothing or the money that can buy those things and make those things happen. Your greatest need is the God who so loved you that he sent his one and only son. He promises that today, if you confess your sins before him, turn from your sin and believe in Jesus who died for your sins, that he could be your substitute in death, that you may join him in eternal life. You will not perish in a real place called hell, but you will receive the gift of eternal life and glory in him. That's the gospel. And so my instruction to you today is wherever you fall on these things we've talked about, wherever it is that you need to work on your love, love for siblings and strangers, love for your spouse, committing yourself to love for your helper, I pray that you would surrender to him today. And perhaps there's someone in this room, I know there is, there's no perhaps to it. If you're in this room today, you got bigger fish to fry than those three things I just mentioned. You need to surrender your life to him once and for all time in salvation.
Today, let's make commitments and keep those commitments. And when we fail, be reminded that that is the very reason that Jesus succeeded.